So there's places that have written about Sinead O'Connor's life and career that are much better informed than what I'll be talking about on this episode. The ever-excellent Helen Brown has written a obituary for The Independent. I love Helen Brown's writing, but what she's written for that publication is a truly astonishing piece of writing. It almost brought me to tears. And I guess sometimes when you're a writer or a podcaster or someone who comments on cultural happenings, you have to ask yourself, why am I talking? What am I bringing to the conversation? And what I can't do is talk about the music of Sinead O'Connor with the authority that I have read in some of the obituaries and thought pieces that have been published in the wake of the news that the incredible Sinead O'Connor, the artist Sinead O'Connor, has died at the age of 56. Not because I don't like the music of Sinead O'Connor. Her debut record, 1987's The Lion and the Cobra, I think is in the conversation for the best debut record ever. I mean, it's a conversation that involves a lot of records, but it's in the conversation. She recorded that record when she was pregnant and features her first proper hit, Mandinka. And in an intersection with one of my principal interests, I Want Your Hands On Me, is in 1988's Not Particularly Great, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And her second record in 1990, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, is a remarkable record. Even if you don't know that album, you'll know nothing compares to you, the Prince cover that propelled her to global stardom, and rightly so. It's difficult to express just how powerful her performance of that song on Top of the Pops was. 1990 being an age where we didn't talk about trauma and sadness. I mean, we did, but not at tea time on BBC One. And I'm 10 when that single comes out, and I've never seen a woman with a shaved head. I've never seen anyone with a tear dripping down their face when they're singing. And at 10, I haven't felt the kind of sadness that that song is drenched in, and in particular, her vocal performance. Prince writes that song, but Sinead O'Connor lives it. And I follow Sinead's career thereafter. When she rips up the photo of the Pope in 1982 on Saturday Night Live, I'm aware of it. I read the newspaper at my nana's house. My nana's a Catholic. She doesn't approve, funnily enough. And I remember the fallout from that point on and all the criticism directed at her that she torpedoed her career and she was so disrespectful. Her 2021 memoir, Rememberings, has got an amazing account about that incident and about just how alone she felt in the wake of doing it. And you have to say, no disrespect to the Catholic faith. Some of my favorite people are Catholic, don't you know? But she was absolutely vindicated with the point that she was trying to make. And here's the thing, when you write about something, you don't always get the apologies that you deserve. But I follow her from that point on, I dip in and out of the records. Some of them are awful. Some of them are very good. But whether they're awful or they're very good, she's always expressing artistry. She says in rememberings that in a way, the power ballad that was nothing compares to you, although describing it as a power ballad feels like you're labeling something in a way that is much more demeaning than really it deserves to be although it is technically a power ballad. But she says that having a hit record like that kind of derailed her career in lots of ways, and actually her career became what it was supposed to be when she rips up the photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. That's a strange thing to say, but I understand where she's coming from. Before that, she's a pop star. After that, she's an artist. She's an activist. But listen, I can talk a bit about the music of Sinead O'Connor because I'm a music journalist that like the music of Sinead O'Connor, but I'm not any real authority on her music. And yet I'm asking myself why I feel so sad about the news of her passing. And I can tell you why I feel so sad. It's because she was something of a hero to me. The way that she battled mental illness, her vulnerability, her honesty. It's funny, on Twitter the other day I was talking about Amy Winehouse. It was the anniversary of Amy Winehouse's passing a couple of days ago. And I was thinking that Amy Winehouse really was pop music's most recent tragedy. 
no disrespect to anyone who passed afterwards, but there's so much with Amy Winehouse where I think what happened to her was avoidable. I never knew Amy, but I knew people who did, and I knocked about a lot of the haunts that she did. So I was always kind of in that orbit, and there were people she shouldn't have been hanging out with. There are people who should have done things that they didn't have done. And I can't look at a picture of Amy Winehouse, fresh-faced, 18 months to a year before she passed, and not think something could have been done. And listen, I've had problems with mental illness for most of my adult life and as the years have gone on and until I actually did something about getting help five, six years ago, my problems with the illness that I now know is OCD and to a degree trauma only got worse and worse and worse. And even me with my wife and my mum who have always been incredibly supportive to me and having a good network of friends around me, sometimes when I was in my moments of most despair, I'm not sure what anyone could have done well, listen, I didn't, I didn't end up... People pulled me back, but I can understand how difficult it was for them. And maybe there's an alternative timeline when they couldn't have done that. So I'm not blaming anyone that was around Amy Winehouse. And I'm not speculating as to the death of Sinead. But if you followed her life in recent years, you will see that the signs that maybe what has happened had been coming for some time. I think when people want to go, they want to go. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight tooth and nail to stop them, but I think that ultimately, when people want to go, they want to go. So with the greatest of respect to Amy Winehouse, I do consider the death of Sinead O'Connor Pop's most recent tragedy. But there is something that I did learn about suicide from the six years that I spent teetering on the brink of committing myself to that kind of finality, and that is that how you feel about suicide varies from moment to moment. Even in the times when I experienced the most despair, and I cannot explain just how desperate I felt in those days, how I didn't think there was anything good around the corner, how I didn't think there was anything that would take away the pain and the fear and the anxiety that I felt. There were moments within that, tiny moments, blips, seconds of hope and light that somehow managed to penetrate the misery that I was entombed in. Because I do believe that suicide is about moments. I say this in case anyone is listening to this who is thinking thoughts that they don't want to be here anymore. What I always say to people who feel like that is just wait, whether it's a minute, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, to see how you feel a little bit later. Because I do think that those moments that we feel, however painful they are, however all-consuming they are, our brains are incredible at moving things on. When I think about the night, the first night that I ever really considered packing it in, yeah, there were more bad things to come. When this book finally arrives on bookshelves, it's a fairly astonishing story how from 2017 to maybe six months ago, my life was more difficult, confusing, fearful than I ever thought it was possible for a life to be. But when I think about the first night that I went missing, the first night I was taken home by the police, the first night that my wife was full of despair and fear, the first night the police kicked down my door because they thought I was dead inside, the first night all my friends were calling me wondering where I was, the first night that I genuinely thought there was no way out of the situation that I was in. When I think about that night and I think, I would have never married my wife. I would never drink cocktails in Costa Rica with my wife. I would never make a documentary for Radio 4. I would never start this podcast. I would never start my YouTube channel. I would never regularly write for The Observer. I would never meet the person that I consider one of the handful of best friends that I have. I would never get a book deal. I would have missed out on an extra few years to say bye to my dad. And I think I'm so pleased at that moment that I was lost in. Well, I'm pleased I waited it out. 
Sinead was such a spiritual person. She was obviously looking for something that would nullify the pain that she felt in the wake of losing her son, but also a childhood which sounds so traumatic, it's beyond comprehension. Even for someone who's writing a book which is largely about childhood trauma beyond comprehension. Like Sinead, I don't quite know what I believe, but I know I believe. And wherever Sinead O'Connor is tonight, Magda David, Shuhada Shadakat, wherever this incredible artist is, I hope she's at peace. And I'm sorry you didn't feel like you could stay with us. <laughs>